taking righteousness today. This is the seedy part of the story, by the way. And it could have went really, really bad. Uh, have you ever heard the saying, a good man is hard to find? <laughs> All the women laugh. It's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I think there's some truth in that statement. You know, and I also think there is, is, this is not a new predicament. I don't think it's hard to find a man now. I think it's always been hard to find a good man. A man that will take care of you and stand up for you and fight for you. And, and, a, and, and so the question is, where does a woman of character, because that's who we've been talking about, Ruth, especially an outsider, because she's not from this area, okay? She's not even supposed to marry into this, 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 this people. I mean, according, according to the rules, this shouldn't be even going on, okay? And where does she find a husband? Where does she, she start looking? A husband that will love her, support her, and take care of her. See, nowadays she would fill out her bio on one of those dating websites, preferably one of the Christian ones. And it would probably go something like this. Young, widowed, attractive, hardworking Moabite woman, seeking hardworking man of good character for long walks in the barley fields and quiet evenings by the fire. Must want to have children, and by the way, you must also not minding, mind living with and taking care of my dead husband's mother. I mean, this was a, tr- a tricky task. But Naomi decided that for Ruth's sake, it needed to be done. She knew that Ruth was young and that Ruth needed to be fulfilled by having a husband. This was, this was not just about finding the kingsman redeemer. This was about, she cared about Ruth. She cared about Ruth and she wanted something for Ruth. So you see, at the end of chapter 2, it leaves the reader wondering, what would come of Naomi's dream? And what would happen to Ruth, the resident alien who was settling down in Naomi's house? See, several weeks have passed now between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And that's where we are today. So what are some of the lessons we're going to learn today? One of the lessons we're going to learn today from Ruth in chapter 3 is that our hope helps us dream. You have to have hope to be able to dream. See, hope helps us think up ways to do good and get our lives on track. If we have no hope, we cannot get our lives on track. Hope helps us pursue, pursue our ventures and our virtue and, and our, with integrity. See, it's hopelessness that makes people think they must lie, cheat, steal, and pursue fit, p- forbidden pleasures that will only last a moment. But hope based on the confidence of a sovereign God is for us. Gives us a a thrilling impulse which John Piper calls strategic righteousness. See, 
We'll see this in Naomi in verse 1 through 5, in Ruth in verses 6 through 9, and in Boaz in verses 10 through 15. And we'll see that this chapter closes again with Naomi full of confidence in the power and goodness of God. You know, we start this, 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 this book with no confidence in a God. She didn't say she didn't believe in God. She didn't have no confidence in God. That God wasn't for her. In this chapter, we're going to witness a risky move on Ruth's part. But what I want you to notice, especially you men listening today, is how a man of incredible pose and integrity acts. See, as a teenager, Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century theologian and philosopher, wrote down a series of personal resolutions. And one of them was this. He resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. See, a few weeks ago I told you that the chief end of man was and what it was, and that was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's beautiful. Because do you know what that means? That God's will for your life is to do whatever you want. To do whatever you want if it glorifies Him. You can do whatever you want as long as it glorifies Him. And you enjoy Him in it. You've got to enjoy Him in it. Not enjoy creation, but enjoy the Creator that made the creation. I mean, if we choose to live like this, we would, we would live lives as people with integrity and God would call us worthy men and women. See, it is the key characteristic that I want you to look at in Naomi, Ruth and Boaz today. So let's start by uh, opening up to verses 1 through 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Two things should stand out to us here as we read verses 1 through 5. One is that Naomi has a plan. And the other is what the plan is. See, the sheer fact that Naomi has a plan teaches us something about Naomi. You see, people who feel like victims don't plan. The victim mentality makes you feel sorry for yourself. And you say, poor me. 
As long as Naomi felt oppressed by God, that was her attitude. That was her attitude. At the beginning of this chapter, it was poor me. No plans. Just poor me. How do I get out of this situation? Poor me. You see, for the Lord, this is what she says. For the Lord dealt bitterly with me. And as long as Naomi was filled with bitterness, she conceived no plans of any type for any future. See, one of the terrible effects of depression is that when you're depressed, you become paralyzed from purposely and hopelessly moving into the future. So you don't pursue the things that you need to pursue to make your life better because you are paralyzed from fear and no hope. See, plans of righteousness are the overflow of hope. If you have hope, you can plan. But if you have no hope, what's the point of planning? There is no point to plan if you have no hope. See, when Naomi awakens to this hasad, the covenant love of God, in chapter 2, verse 20, her hope comes alive and the overflow of that hope in the goodness of God, causes her to start planning. Start thinking up, how can we make our lives better? You see, we can pray to God to change things. And I think prayer is the most powerful thing a Christian has. And I believe he will move in them prayers. But a newsflash for you is that you're going to have to make the move Two, we don't just pray and do nothing and wait. I can't find that in the Bible. I see action. You look at all the stories. They pray, but there's always actions, aren't there? They're not just praying. They always do something too. They put their trust in God, and then they do something. You know, sometimes when we pray, it's because... God wants to use you to answer some of these prayers in people's lives. You see, we have to be people that don't just pray, we follow through. We follow through. Yes, we put our trust in Christ, so we, the prayer is the first thing we do. But then we have to take action. We have to take action. She is now concerned, Naomi is now concerned with finding Ruth a place of care and security and she begins to make a plan. We need to learn from from this, not just as people, but as a church. You see, one of the reasons as a church we must help each other hope in God is because hopeful churches, hopeful churches plan and strategize for the future. See, churches that feel no hope develop a maintenance mentality. Let's just maintain what we've got. This is good. We all feel good here. We're all comfortable here. Let's maintain what we have, but not plan for some sort of future. Not strategize to make things better. See, they end up 
When you don't, and you just have this mentality of maintenance, you end up just going through motions year in and year out, not having any impact in the world. What's the point of that? But if a church gets this, and they truly feel the sovereign covenant love of God hovering overhead and moving forward, they will plan. And they will strategize to grow. Then, and only then, hope starts to thrive within the righteousness. And righteousness isn't just the simple avoidance of evil. No, righteousness becomes active and strategic. We, we start to see all the ways God can use us as a church and how he can use us to help change this world and this area that we live in. I say God placed Calvary Memorial Church in Rockford for a reason. In Rockford for a reason. See, Naomi took the initiative to find Ruth a husband, but I think the plan she comes up with was not the brightest idea. I mean, if you read that text, it's like you think so many things could go bad here. She says in verse 2 that Boaz is a relative, a kinsman, and therefore he is a likely candidate for, for being Ruth's future husband. That way the family name and the family inheritance will stay in the family according to the Hebrew law. So Naomi, Naomi's aim is clear, to get Ruth a godly husband and secure a future and preserve the family line. So what does she do? She tells Ruth to clean up. This is basically, hey, Ruth, I need you to take a bath. You know, you need to get that good smelly stuff on, that the, best, the best smelly stuff you've got, and, and put your nicest clothes on and make yourself as attractive as possible. Remember, Boaz has only ever seen Ruth working in the field, all sweaty and dirty, and he hasn't made any advances to court her yet. So Ruth gets herself clean, puts on her best smelling oil, and then puts on her nice cloak. Then Naomi tells her to go down to the threshing floor of Boaz, and after he has laid down for the night... And fell asleep. Do you know why he was going to lay down and fall asleep? Because he's been threshing wheat, okay, barley. And now they've been eating and drinking. And by the way, if they were drinking it, the grape harvest hasn't been yet. So they weren't just drinking grape juice. At this point, the only way you were drinking is they were drinking wine. And they probably drank lots of wine because it's a bunch of guys freshing barley at the freshing floor. Very dangerous place to be for a woman. Lots of things could have went wrong with this plan. Lots of things could have went wrong with this plan. So, so but she goes. And after he is laid down for the night and fell asleep, sneak in, lift up his cloak and lay down at his feet, and wait. Wait for what? I mean, if the, the, this could get x-rated real fast. 
you know, I think everybody, including Ruth, is thinking, and just where do you think this is going to go? To which Naomi says, in verse 4, he will tell you what to do. This doesn't sound good to me. Like, if I stopped reading here, this would be a bad story. Right? How wrong this could have gone. You see, one thing is clear and one thing not so much. It's clear that Naomi is trying to get Boaz to marry Ruth. It's not clear why she would go about it like this. So many things could have gone wrong. Boaz could have ran Ruth away in moral indignation. Or he could have taken advantage of Ruth. I mean, who's going to believe an out-of-towner, especially a Moabite? He could have easily raped Ruth. And nobody would have believed her. See, was Naomi indifferent to these possibilities? Did Naomi want what that to happen? Or was Naomi so sure of Boaz and Ruth that she knew they would treat each other with love and respect, a perfect purity? Did, did she think that Boaz would be deeply moved by this outright offer of Ruth in marriage? And he would avoid any sexual relations until they were married at the city gates by the elders? I mean, what was she thinking? You know, whatever Naomi's motive is, the author doesn't tell us, does he? But this situation is one that could have led us into a passionate and illicit sexual scene. Or into a beautiful scene of purity, integrity, and self-control. So let's continue to see just how two godly people respond to a plan that wasn't all that bright. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. See, this was a potential dangerous encounter. Ruth agreed to do all that her mother-in-law told her. But as we see in verse 9, Ruth's actions diverge from her mother-in-law's plan. You see, instead of leaving this situation in a dangerous, ambiguous one, as a woman of character, Ruth wanted to make her intentions clear right from the get-go. Her goal was a commitment to marriage, not a role in the barley. For a one-night stand or a single night of passion. In the ancient world, such commitment was symbolized by the gesture of covering somebody with the corner of one's robe. Roughly equivalent of the giving of an engagement ring in our day. See, Ruth 
wanted Boaz to marry her and thus provided a refuge for her and Naomi, just as a kingsman redeemer would do. Like I said last week, a kingsman redeemer was a person who had the obligation to buy back his relatives if they had sold themselves into slavery to pay off their debt. See, under certain circumstances, the kingsman redeemer would also be obligated to marry his brother's widow in order to raise a family for the dead, a family that would inherit his property. See, clearly there was no obligation for Boaz to act in this way. Otherwise, this kind of elaborate, risky plan would not have been necessary. See, Ruth could have just simply walked up to Boaz in the marketplace... And say to Boaz, you are my kingsman redeemer, man up and do what you're supposed to do. Why go about it the way she's going about it? See, Boaz was a man of character. Surely he would do what was needed to be done despite the personal and social cost to him. See, what Ruth was asking Boaz was to act like a kingsman redeemer even though he was not under any legal obligation to do so. He had many excuses, by the way. We're not going to go for them, but he did not have to do this. She was a foreigner. He did not have to do anything. He did not have to marry her. He had many excuses. He could have got out of this many ways. But he didn't. What Ruth was asking Boaz is to act like this kingsman redeemer. Ruth is appealing to Boaz to be a family member who, at his own cost, would act to rescue those who had no future, even though he didn't have to. See, Ruth's request required more than just a little guts. No, it was, a, it was countercultural for a woman to pro, propose to a man. And especially a younger person to propose to an older one or a field worker to propose to a landowner. See, Naomi's plan had called her to just simply wait and be silent at this point and let Boaz do all the talking and take the initiative. However, whether out of faith or out of fear or simply her inability to keep her mouth shut. Ruth blurted out her whole heart in response to Boaz, rather rather less searching questions. See, as a strategy, Ruth's words left a great deal to be desired. See, Naomi's more open-ended scheme had a variety of possible outcomes that might have reached the same results through more or less moral accepted paths. Yeah, but Ruth knows that her future didn't ultimately depend on her ability to formulate a cunning plan and execute it. See, no, God was overruling all things for good. And amazingly enough, we will find out that Boaz agrees to her audacious request. Ruth was risking rejection. See, the act of of Ruth compels me to ask this question. What am I willing to risk for what? What am I willing to risk and for what? We know what Ruth was willing to risk. What are you willing to risk and for what? 
What is something that you need to do, but you won't do it because the risk seems too high? You don't want to be rejected. You don't want other people to tell you no. See, I'm sure there are some of you that ask that same question. People are willing to face all kinds of perils in life, both big and small, for what the what they for for what for the sake of having fun. You know, or receiving a promotion, or having a family, uh, uh, having a family, or pe- pe- uh, people are willing to put up with all kinds of discomforts and and potential costs. What are you willing to do? See, people climb mountains where they can die just to climb a mountain. They cross seas, they work long hours and endure pain for all kinds of reasons. So I want to ask you this question. What are you willing to risk for the sake of the gospel? What are you willing to risk for the sake of the gospel? See, for most of us, the true answer would be not that much. If we're honest. The true answer would be, not that much. We're not willing to risk our lives or our health or our our reputations or our comfort or our friends or our families for the sake of the gospel. See, the most obvious proof of our aversion to spiritual risk lies in our unwillingness to talk about God. Francis Francis Schaeffer says, called this, our guilty silence. Oh, I better not talk about God. That might offend somebody. Well, I'm telling you, we live in a world that you're going to offend somebody anyway. I mean, come on. You're offended by people. What are we worried about? See, never putting our reputation on the line or at risk at the midnight hour during barley harvest, we wouldn't risk being thought odd or crazy by our friends over coffee or lunch because we brought up Jesus to them. We say we believe the gospel. We don't act like we believe the gospel. And remember, we can't save anyone. This is the beauty. I don't understand. We can't save anybody. You're not going to save anybody talking about Jesus. So there's no, there's no like worry for you to talk about Jesus. Because if they don't accept Jesus, that's not your responsibility. The Bible clearly says God saves, not you. So why are we so afraid? You'll see, we all have excuses. Sharing our faith is hard. It might cost us, our friends, our reputation. You know, people might think you're crazy. They might be right though. You might be crazy. But it won't be because you believe in Jesus. You're not crazy because you believe in Jesus. You're probably just crazy. You're probably just weird. 
Whether you believe in Jesus or not, by the way, you're weird. Just because you believe in Jesus doesn't make you weird. There was a time that if you didn't believe in Jesus, you was probably weird. And we ask, what these people have done for you to deserve me taking what these people have done for me, so I, why, should I des- why do they deserve me taking a risk for them? I will say we do this not because of what they have done for us, but what we should do this because of what Jesus has done for us. You see, it's selfish, by the way. When you don't share Jesus, you're a selfish human being. Because you say you deserve Jesus. When you don't share it, you're saying, I deserve Jesus, but they don't. They don't need to know about Jesus. See, Ruth had had said the same thing. Her actions certainly could have cost her her reputation, or much worse, did Naomi deserve this, to have Ruth go out on her limb? Certainly not. Naomi didn't deserve this from Ruth. Everything that Ruth's done so far, Naomi hasn't deserved, by the way. Naomi went to find food for them. I mean, Ruth went to find food for them. Naomi didn't deserve that. She didn't deserve that. Naomi didn't deserve this. See, certainly not, because Ruth had made a commitment to Naomi. Despite her early coldness and her lack of response. You see, remember in chapter 1? Remember what happened in chapter 1 when Ruth declares her loyalty to Naomi? That her God, she would never leave her and her God will be her God? What was Naomi's response? Silence. Silence. She said nothing. See, Ruth would not let anything stand in front of her promises, though. When we make promises to people, by the way, if you believe in Jesus and you make a promise to people, you better try your hardest to keep them promises. See, I want to ask you to think about this. Who are the people that you could reach for Christ if only you would take a personal risk for the gospel. And what problem is holding you back from all that God wants you to be that you're scared to deal with? Let's continue. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made the, this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. See, this is the part of the story when a complication to the plan arose. Oh, crap. This was going really well. And now what? There's somebody else? See, although Boaz was a close relative of Naomi's, apparently there was one redeemer even closer. See, as Boaz explained to Ruth, now it is 
true that I am a relation, yet there is a redeemer even closer than I. At this, Ruth's heart probably sank. She had just poured out her heart to Boaz, and now we have a problem. Boaz is not the only redeemer. We can almost hear Ruth wondering aloud to herself how she is going to have to repeat the threshing floor encounter with some other man. But what Boaz is going to take care of, but what Boaz is going to take care of this unwanted and unexpected complication. See, he tells Ruth in the morning, I will approach the man and sound him out. I'll feel him out. In other words, in the, if the other man wanted to redeem her, then good and well. And he says, but if he is not willing, is the way that EFV says. But Boaz's language is really stronger than that. Implying that he regards it as a high privilege to be able to help Ruth and Naomi in this way. He feels privileged to be able to do this. Boaz then swore that he would do it himself. One way or another, Naomi and Ruth will certainly be taken care of. See, Ruth's faithfulness. The text went on to say, remember tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning. But he arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. See, her faithfulness was rewarded. See, Boaz is not just concerned about taking care of her. He is also concerned for her public rep- reputation. No matter what, happens between, what happened between them, he doesn't want anybody else to judge her for what she's just done. For she is in serious spiritual or moral danger at the threshing floor. See, the things Boaz is most concerned about is not simply his integrity, but preserving Ruth's integrity. And protecting her in her time of need. See, in this sense, Boaz, our hero, is like the greatest hero of all. He's acting Christ-like. See, I'm not saying Boaz is a type of Christ. That would be a mistake. But he's acting Christ-like. See, I'm saying in the Old Testament, we see characters that seem to reflect the likeness of of the coming Christ. You see, Boaz expresses a gracious respect for Ruth. Let's read verses 10 and 11 again. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made the, the last kindness greater than the first, and you have not gone after young men. See, Boaz was much older whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. You know, she's only lived in a town for three months, probably. And she's been considered by townspeople a worthy woman. A foreigner, to get that title, must be doing some extra special, by the way. To be noticed. 
by the people. See, we've got to notice that he is very gentle with, with Ruth. She's a new believer. She's just really put her trust in, in Yahweh. See, he, he does not manhandle her and brush her aside with in, incriminating or derogative words like, get out of here. Don't you have an, any idea what it means to live a covenant life? He doesn't treat her like that. Think of how this would have crushed Ruth already bruised spirit if he'd done that. See, it might well have destroyed her. Instead, Boaz speaks with a tenderness and a graciousness that marks him out as precisely the kind of man this woman really needed. See, and a man we should try to copy. We should try to to see how people like Boaz live, and we should try to live, as men, we should try to live like that. Verses 15 through 18. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city And when she came home to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. See, we should be excited here by the announcement of six measures of barley. This woman, by the way, is strong. Ruth is strong. Do you know how I know? Because she 30 to 50 pounds of, 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 of grain in the last chapter. I don't know how she carried this home. Do you know how much, roughly, this weighs? About 80 pounds. She got to haul this home. She don't have a wheelbarrow. She got 80 pounds of grain to take home. You know, this was not just generous financial gift from Boaz towards Naomi and Ruth. Provides for their physical needs. I think it's symbolic. Expression of Ruth's greater need for a seed, a child. And perhaps it's also significant that Ruth only received six measures and not seven measures of barley. Because in biblical symbolism, the number six stands for incompleteness. Whereas seven stands for completeness. See, the world was actually built in six days. But it wasn't complete until the seventh, to the Sabbath. You see, when Ruth returns home, now let me ask a question. It's not the question I just read out of the ESV though. She says, how do you fare my daughter? Actually, the question was, Translated literally was, 
Who are you, my daughter? Who are you, my daughter? This has puzzled translators and, and, and commentators alike for years. That's probably why they changed the text a little bit, by the way. But the, the, the literal translation, it says, Who are you, my daughter? Well, you'd think she would know who Ruth was. See, at first sight, it doesn't fit. Doesn't Naomi know who Ruth is, even in the dark? But the question exactly, is exactly the same question Boaz asked earlier in this chapter. See, it, it is that Naomi has been struggling with throughout this book. Who is this Moabite woman? Is she a person of no significance, an outsider and an outcast? This is as Naomi has, had viewed her in chapter 1. She's just an outsider. There's nothing special about Ruth. It makes you wonder also is, I don't think she expected Ruth to come back with this news. You know? And, and six, 80 pounds of grain. I don't think she expected that. And she's saying, who are you? Or is is Naomi thinking, are you more than I ever thought you were? Is she the one who will ultimately provide Naomi with an enduring place in the genealogies of Israel through the provision of a son? We'll find out she is. She's extremely special. See, the growing relation, uh, realization of Ruth's value is underlined by Boaz's generous gift. He sends Ruth back with 80 pounds of barley so that she did not go home empty. See, the same word Naomi used to describe herself in chapter 1 when she said that she came back empty, Boaz used to say, I won't send you back empty. How beautiful is God? How amazing is God? See, but the Lord is fulfilling all Naomi's needs through Ruth and Boaz. She was no longer empty. The Lord had provided food for her hunger and a place of rest for the weary body. But let's talk about the real love story. See, all through this story, there has been a redeemer closer than Boaz. A redeemer for Naomi and Ruth who has hovered in the shadows of this narrative, behind the scenes, behind all human agents, reaching out to his beloved but wandering sheep and showing them grace upon grace. You see, the story of Boaz and Ruth is not really a love story at all. At least not in the modern sense. It, it is not a story about boy meets girl in which both parties are physically attracted to each other. We know that Boaz was much older than Ruth. We know that Ruth was a hard-working girl who could work all day in the field with very little breaks and that she could carry 80 pounds of grain home on her back. This is not the typical Hollywood hero meets heroine type of couple. 
See, the commitment that Ruth and Boaz had for each other was built on a common character attributes, not physical attractions. See, theirs was a character match, not a love match. They were people of substance. Unlike how many people pick their partners today, today we're all about the looks and the outward charm. All that, by the way, fades. Sometimes pretty quickly. But if you find somebody with good character and integrity, those things will never change. Boaz and Ruth's relationship is built on the foundation of their common beliefs. The real love story is the book is in this book is not about Boaz and Ruth. The real love story is going on behind the scenes. It is the love story of God for his straying sheep. It is the love that stopped him from destroying the world when Adam and Eve sinned. It is the love that chose and called Abraham and then persisted on pursuing his rebellious offspring. It is the love that would not let them go despite their centuries long history of rebellion and idolatry. Always turning away from him. The The love that pursued us When we didn't believe. This is the love that makes the sunshine and the rain fall. In the lives of his children. This love feeds us our daily food and clothes us. In his providence, his love may bring us godly friends to encourage us. And godly spouses with whom to share our lives. See, for all the true gifts of God's great love, for us... We should be thankful. In this gift of love lies the reason why we should speak. There's a love story waiting to be told and it's not ours. There's a people who have not experienced God's great love. So how can we keep quiet? How can we not speak of God's great love who has and does love us so much and he never worried about what it would cost him he didn't care about the risks we must look for opportunities to speak of his love and be representatives of this great love see remember having been loved so much we must surely declare the praises of the redeemer who saved us with his precious blood This story, the true love story behind this, is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's the reason. He's the reason. This is how God moves in our lives. This story just shows us how he moves, how he works behind the scenes. If you can't see that, you're not really getting the true story of Ruth. That God is at work no matter what. Yes, life sucks sometimes. It drains us. There's hard things that we have to deal with. And if we don't deal with them, there's consequences for not dealing with them situations. 
But God is for us, not against us. But he wants us to act. So this week I want you to ask yourself, are you trusting in the one who can redeem you? Are you fully trusting in him? Jesus has already paid the price for your salvation. You know, I want you to spend some time this, 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 this week. Each morning is the best time, but you can do it whenever you want. You can do it multiple times a day. But when you get out of bed, to praise him for being your kinsman redeemer, you needed to be redeemed. He redeemed you. If you put your trust in him, think of all the things that he's done for you over your life. And this is what, how can it stop you doing other stuff? If God can do all of that, what else can he do if we let him? If he can do all of what he's done, if he can do everything that he's done in my life, I can't say he's not able to do this. Because I know what he's already done in my life. You know what he's already done in your life. And when they say he will move mountains, I believe he has moved mountains in my life. I believe he's moved mountains in your life. And I believe he's still working. And then read Ruth 4, 1 through 12. And join us, not next week, the week after, for lesson 6, Redeeming Ruth. And God is going to move if you let him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you today. I thank you that you are an amazing God. A God who loves us. A God who cares for us. And moves in our lives. Sometimes painfully. But you are still moving. Sometimes you allow things to happen that we would wish didn't happen in our lives. But you use these situations to grow us into your children. Help us to be uh, able to share your love with more people. Help us to not hold, uh, be scared and afraid to speak about your great love. Help us to live lives that reflect your great love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.